That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I was going to have to be an outlaw. To be a transgender person was to be an outlaw. And that was something I learned very early, that um, I was going to somehow have to transcend the laws <laughs> itself in order to survive, uh, right. in order yeah. to be authentic, to be truthful. So um, I think growing up with that uh, obviously made me much more of a civil libertarian, um, somebody that believes that uh, everybody has the same rights, so regardless of their color. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. And here with us to BS today is my friend, Mia Yamamoto. Uh, Mia uh, and I met um, through another organization. She was on a panel that I had. And I just knew from that moment forward from meeting Mia that uh, we had to have her on BS Uh, Beyond Stereotypes, because um, I found her story and her life and her passions fascinating, and I have no doubt that you will as well. So welcome, Mia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Mia Yamamoto is a transgender woman. Uh, Mia was born Michael Yamamoto in the Poston relocation camp in Arizona, You graduated from uh, Cal State University uh, with a BS in government. Um, You then joined the Army, uh, where you received several commendations um, and then came back and and, uh, attended UCLA's law school, after which you opened your own practice. You are a criminal lawyer uh, and um, uh, an, an activist. Uh, for uh, transgender and the LGBTQ community. Did I, did I get all that right, Mia? Yeah, yeah. that's great. That's fine. Uh, that's fine. Awesome. So I was, I'm really, really excited about talking to you, um, particularly now with everything that's going on, you know, in the world, in the United States. Um, last week, we um, got the, the verdict in the George Floyd case. I just wanted to start there because you're a, you're a criminal lawyer and and get your your take on on George Floyd and and that trial and and just find out, you know, how you were struck by struck by all of that. Well, you know, getting to watch the uh, the the trial itself was actually televised, which they do with important cases nowadays and it struck me that everybody involved, including all of the world, had to kind of go through the trauma again. Those witnesses um, had had seen something and experienced something that was indelibly damaging and hurtful, and they were having to go through it again on the witness stand. And it's just the nature of of this wrenching moment that finally. Uh, a white police officer is convicted of killing a black man, something that 
unfortunately happens all too often and um, is not captured on videotape. The only reaction I had, honestly, was that I was I was so happy that this girl had videotaped this because right. it, it's always a matter of of people who actually give you something like that, which is you know a videotape is very powerful evidence, and it probably turned the tide with respect to that case. And I kind of looked at it that way. I thought it was just like a small, almost accidental thing that happened that she happened to be coming by. That one right. case out of hundreds, maybe thousands, of other injustices, stark injustices that were being in the process of being covered up, literally, um, had it not been for that videotape. So I guess that's what went through my mind. But, you know, I'm the type of person I felt sorry for everybody. I mean, I felt sorry for the judge. <laughs> I mean, everybody's going through that. And, you know, I'm a criminal defense attorney. And that poor defense attorney had to uh, try to ward off all that evidence, you know, that, that he could even find that one criminalist that was, that was right. what I say that, you know, <laughs> watching it all play out like that so graphically on television allows me to believe that technology will be uh, our friend going forward, that there will be more tapes and more, more truth um, sort of infused with all everything else. <laughs> I don't know. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. Do you see this as really being some kind of precedent for the, for the future in a, in a good way? Or do you think this is just going to be a one-off? It's got to be good. If, if the truth is revealed through a process that we rely upon, that we, we want to trust. Um, anytime something happens that where the outcome is, is popularly accepted is something that is, is invariably what is necessary and helpful to the continuation and the preservation of a judicial system. Um, it is a system that had been losing credibility uh, steadily over the course of time with the advent of things like DNA testing and um, other more scientific methods of uh, achieving some, some truth. Um, now, it's, it, all those things are starting to be revealed. I do see that as a good thing. Um, I'm happy with it. Um, I'm optimistic, <laughs> despite all my yeah. cynicism. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so so let's 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 move to to um, you. Let's let's hear a little bit of little little bit about you. I have so many things I want to ask you about, but um, on a on a personal level, and this idea, this unbelievable idea that you could be born in a relocation uh, camp. You know, can you just tell us a little bit about that and 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 how that maybe formed who you are? Um, and you know, what would you want audiences who who are not even familiar with the fact that th that that was a thing? Believe it or not, there are people who aren't don't really know. What do you want them to know, Mia? You know, it's like so much that's happening. <clears throat> you you can't have reconciliation without truth. So it's like this, if, if I am born, and I was, I was born in a World War II concentration camp for Japanese Americans. I have to bear witness with respect to that experience and to my whole community's experience during that time and examine the society that we're a part of. Uh, what, what was wrong with that society that allowed something like that to happen? And for me, at least, it is actually... 
I think, define the arc of my own life. Having been born in, some, in that circumstance, uh, I almost, well, if it, I subconsciously have always rooted for the underdog, always known yeah. that Me too. I was going to be myself. I was going to have to be an outlaw. To be a transgender person was to be an outlaw. And that was something I learned very early, that um, I was going to somehow have to transcend the laws <laughs> itself in order to survive. Uh, right. In order to yeah. be authentic, to be truthful. So um, I think growing up with that uh, obviously made me much more of a civil libertarian, um, somebody that believes that uh, everybody has the same rights, so regardless of their color. Um, those kinds of things don't occur to people uh, in a society that really is overseen and overlaid with certain presumptions about, um, about white supremacy. Bias is bias, and most people don't want to. <laughs> people don't want to admit it. I'll admit it. Um, and if I spoke on the other panel, with it, we all harbor biases and stereotypes. We we are hyper aware of them nowadays because we need to right. be in order to keep from hurting other people around us, especially doing it stupidly or ignorantly. Um, so we are. We highlight these things in order to make all of our connections and our relationships, all our communication better. Uh, that's that's it in a nutshell to me. I mean, that's the reason why all of this that we're talking about, um, yeah, biases and stereotypes are only useful if you're lazy in terms of your thinking about people. Because when you right. encounter individuals, you can't rely upon those things to 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 get you through your encounter. Let me just put it to you that way. You got to start with something a lot more empathetic and, and hopefully open. Um, right. And empathy, empathy is, is key, right? Empathy hmm. is something that, you know, like you said earlier that you've always, you know, rooted for the underdog. I have too. And I'm, you know, I think that if you've been bullied, um, I, I have to imagine that you had your fair share of bullying. <laughs> yeah. I certainly had my fair share of bullying <laughs> growing up, you know, as a, a mm -hmm. really smart person in, in Compton. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and it's those kind of experiences that, that hopefully shape us into wanting to, to help other people, um, transcend all of that. And that, that, that brings me to, you know, this other issue that has, that I'm imagining, you know, has been, been, um, close to your heart and, and that's the Asian hate that's been going on. I mean, and it's not that this is new, obviously you were born in a con concentration camp. Um, but you know, this, the, 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 uh, travesties and, and that have occurred, you know, post George Floyd, uh, and, and in the last few months, um, what are we going to do about this, Mia? Well, you know, every, every single, every single event, that sort of galvanizes people and gets them together uh, is good. And uh, I'm looking at all this anti-Asian hatred and all the violence. And of course, you know, it's, it's, it's awful you know, for those folks who are, who are going through it. But, and, and you know, what's interesting is like I said, I've seen an unbroken strain of that going through my life and, and my history as, you know, if, if you're a black person going, you can't, it's unavoidable. The experience, the attitudes, the um, the whole history is 
is <clears throat> it's overlaid. it's real. The struggle is real. <laughs> it's been overlaid by 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 white supremacy. To be perfectly honest, I mean, you, you look at every element of experience around you that is crafted around certain assumptions and a certain hierarchy that people seem to just accept. And the real problem with it, as I see with Asian American people, is that, you know, it's to be an accomplice to white supremacy is to buy into the model of the model minority myth mm -hmm. to somehow, yep. you know, be the, the white auxiliary out there in the world uh, is, is, is from my point of view, it's like, that's like major league shuffling. You know, that's like, <laughs> I want to live in a master's house, you know? Right. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like, you know, Asian Americans have been singled out uh, for the violence. And I think specifically by Donald Trump and uh, the whole, let's blame China. Let's blame all these Asians for bringing this virus here, you know, somehow. Um, it didn't matter. My, my folks got here like in the, in the 19th century. So, but if, <laughs> you know, if they look at you, it doesn't really matter. And, and the one thing Asian Americans, I think the lesson that we have learned is in my, in my lifetime dealing with anti-Asian hatred and violence, Vincent Chin, the famous Vincent Chin case, he was, he was attacked and murdered because they thought he was Chinese. They thought he was, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> he was a Chinese man they thought was Japanese and they killed him. And I've always said, these folks can't tell us apart. They don't bother to. Uh, they have a whole uh, stereotype in their uh, crosshairs uh, with, in the bullseye. And, and uh, if you're a really simple-minded sort of primal, uh, you know, sort of Neanderthal mentality, it's like big boss says, go get those Asians. And if you're, you're sort of frustrated and angry, the first person you're gonna take it out on is the one that your boy has recommended. And uh, it, this is, if it would be, it's one thing <clears throat> to sort of single us out for this behavior, but Asian Americans have to sort of wake up to the idea that we're connected to all of racism, not just right. racism against Asian Americans. There's a whole thing about black and brown people that whether or not you want to believe it, is something that we're, we're a part of it, want to recognize it or not. Most of us uh, in, in inner cities have been fortunate to sort of, you know, mix, mix it up with people from all cultures. We've learned a right. lot of really important lessons, uh, and that is that we have more in common <clears throat> when you are united, uh, sort of in order trying to advance the whole community. We have more in common uh, when we are being targeted. It is a wake up to this commonality that this is just the latest. We are the sort of the minority of the moment <clears throat> targeting by the um, sort of the militant fascists who are, who are trying to make a point about uh, who they think is the boss. So to speak. Right. You right. Know, and yeah. And, of, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I was going to say, and that, that was, that was kind of the lesson. The lesson has been learned by, by non-minority women. Right. Is that, right, yeah. um, you know, is, is that, you know, you yeah. are you really you really uh, you know non-minority women have been able to take advantage of the diversity card right and and mm -hmm. and and advance because of that and i i don't have a problem problem with it because no. you know it's like anything that can can help advance the idea to quote unquote make make 
people feel comfortable um, mm-hmm. is, is not a bad thing. But I think that what has happened is everybody who's different and you're different if you're not a straight white man, right? Everybody mm-hmm. who is different has something in common and it really does behoove us to work together. The thing about it is, and it's, it's been said elsewhere, that our, our diversity is actually our strength. And I think we've seen it. You know, I think what's the new thing for, for some of these folks who are on the other side of this, that that we are in a diverse society. We can make it work. We've been making it work. Um, the people that are rebelling against progressive change have benefited from white preference and the defenders of white supremacy continue politically um, in very clever and manipulative ways to try to continue to maintain power. Um, I think that there's a, there's a large issue that we're talking about here and that you're right about women being sort of white women are second, you know, right. after the white men. They would, and they would reach, reap the benefit of a movement that, let's face it, all of us are a part of and benefited from the movement for black liberation, which was the civil rights movement. And it ultimate, ultimately was a rebellion against white supremacy. It was the, the front lines against an existing philosophy that was damaging to any other person who was not white. And ultimately, uh, it's resulted in a re-examination of the whole power uh, structure. But the main thing is that Asian American people, for me anyway, have to come to this realization that it is something about it's something about mass movement that is the only way that we can defend against anti-Asian hate, because ultimately we have to understand that this is all part of a of a, of a backlash against something <laughs> that as far as I'm concerned, is still in motion, is still a, a work in progress uh, called the Civil Rights Movement, which ultimately still came from the struggle for Black liberation, completely unfinished business today that we all have to be a part of it. it it's just that was the message, or that is the message, I feel like, that Asian Americans hear this, that we are not monolithic either. (laughs) Right. We're just one giant community with a whole bunch of facets and a whole bunch of little minor communities and tribal loyalties and rivalries. And, um, but understanding that we try to forge a place for ourselves in America, so to speak. And in, in many ways, make sure that we can open up the doors for everybody. Um, I still have always felt that, 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 and it's, and it's something I've been talking about with respect to this whole struggle for international human rights. Uh, the whole Toni Morrison, you know, if you achieve freedom for yourself, it's meaningless unless you seek freedom for others. Thank that's you. What the movement, yeah, that's what the movement is all about. That's what, why we, we move. And that's why we come together, because we can't do it alone. We have to have each other. Every time we wake up to that message and that reality and that, and that awareness, of where solidarity takes us and how solidarity defends us is 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 an important is an important awareness in the middle of the struggle to know which direction you're going and why. You know, just on a personal level, I have to admit I've always been all the movements I've been a part of and always been has never been a part of electoral politics. 
it's always been, you know, other than that, anything other than that. And this right. last presidency was so bad that it actually drove me to get more involved in electoral politics. And I just, I oh, really? Mean, what, so what did you do? What What have you done? Well, you know, getting active with, with other Democrats, other other like Democratic clubs they have them here in L.A., um, doing that type of connecting up with them and, you know, trying to figure out how I can do, how I can be useful you know, in an election. I'll put it to you that way. Because um, I'm starting to look at it and realizing we can make some very big mistakes, you know. Right. Well, that's been, that's, we've shown that, right? And so that has been a vivid and enduring lesson for me that, you know, I can't set these out. You know what I mean? I can't just throw money at these people. I've got to get involved. Um, So that's what, that's what, that's what Donald Trump and his ilk and the people that continue to support him, uh, that's what they have actually done to me. It inspired me to action. (laughs) So, right. So, so let's means- talk about something a little bit more fun. I, I, oh, okay. I read, <laughs> I read that um, uh, in finding your way through your transition that you you got involved in the arts and yeah, you learned to yeah. dance and play music. Let's let's talk about Mia's artistic side. I love that. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been playing in bands ever since like nineteen what seventy eight something like that. Um, that's just, you know, I think any musician will tell you, anybody, even a part-time musician like myself, that it's that part of you that's the most fulfilling. Um, I've always sort of sought out music as sort of a refuge, a, a place where I could find my own voice and myself. And um, it was a solitary pursuit that didn't require um, anything, you know, except me singing. And um what was interesting, I used to sing in bars and stuff like that with my guitar, my acoustic guitar, and it wasn't uh-huh. have a big deal. But I had some friends that um, played in a band called Prairie Fire, and they uh, broke up. <laughs> Talk about the circumstance, I'm not going to go into it, but I remember the bass player and the violin player came to me, and they wanted me to sing for them. They wanted me. They wanted to start a new band. And I have to admit, when I first started playing, I kept thinking, you know, geez, I'm just a bar singer. You know, these rock and roll men. <laughs> The lead singer of a rock and roll band. That's that's a little bit out of my reach. I need yeah. pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we started playing. We, we we played a few gigs together, and people seemed to like us. So we started playing together. Uh, we brought on my 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 guitar teacher, Chuck Coran, who was like just the most wonderful lead guitar player. And then um, then we started bringing in all these ringers. There were people that played for all these major bands um, around. Um, John, uh, my my piano player, had been uh, the musical director on a cruise with the Pointer Sisters. Oh, Um, wow. Drummer uh, had played uh, in the same bands with um, Grand Central Station and um, the Doobie Brothers. Um, So there was, the band was full with ringers. (laughs) I would get out there and, um, you know, sing. And I try to to deliver the songs, let's put it that way. You know, try to be the entertainer if I could be. Uh And... um, at first, I'd walk into the bars and I'd think, gee, I hope they like us. <laughs> that would be my first thought. And uh, after about 10 years, I would get so much uh, attention. And, you know, the lead singer in a band gets a ridiculous amount of undeserved attention. Right. Just because you can sing doesn't mean that you can, like, read music like my piano player or my violin player. You know, there's, like, virtuosos I'm surrounded by. And people want to walk up and say, can I have your autograph? I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> 
But you know, I have to admit though, the experiences is something I just remember thinking about that the other day that I wish everybody could actually experience that. You go into a place and, the, and everybody's, you know, here's your music, they jump up, they start dancing, and the whole place just, you know, loves you. You know, because I remember, I, I've had to describe the expression, you know, first, you're worried about whether they're going to like you, whether they're going to boo you off the stage. Um, and then after 10 years, I walk into a place and I think pretty soon you're all going to be smiling. And then after that, very soon, you're all going to be dancing. And by the end of the evening, you're going to want to take me home with you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, and I don't know if it's just the people whom I'm, uh, uh, I have a connection to or what, but of the probably, you may be number 12 um, interview. I think at least half of the people, the lawyers that I've interviewed for this podcast have been musicians. I've had, you know, a, a, a rapper, the, the GC, the uh, GC of the Golden State Warriors is a rapper. I wow, just yeah. talked to the, the, GC, the GC of the, of the, a woman young woman who's the GC of the um, of an NFL football team. She's a bar singer. Um, the former GC of Starbucks has the, the Paula Boggs band. I mean, I could just go on and on. And there's, do you have any, do you, cause you know, lawyers are, are known as being not, not being creative people, but I'm starting to see a, a trend yeah. that that's think, not the case. I think a lot of them are, I think they have to do the left brain, right thing, right brain thing in order to kind of find some balance though, too. It's just um, the, the law can be so black and white. I mean, in terms of um, your approach to it, in terms of, you know, preparation. Um, so I think, you know, what I, what I think music though is consistent with sort of the problem solving element of law where you're trying to find patterns and, uh, and ways of looking at things that provide it with a perspective that's beneficial to your side, your set of facts and your client. So the music for me, I, you know, I've had to, after like 30 something years on the streets with uh, bands, I had to memorize the songs because I can't deliver them. If I, if I don't have them completely memorized, so I can sell that song. Right. Um, it's, um, I don't have a good enough voice in my opinion, in order to just uh, to just dazzle them, you know, I'm, I always say I'm no Marvin Gaye. <laughs> there was only <laughs> one that dude could stand there and sing and just you know drop everybody to their knees. He was the baddest dude alive. So I had to know the lyrics perfectly and um, and the music and everything, chords. You know, I've got to get that down perfectly, or else I can't perform it. I can't deliver it. I can't. I can't bring the joyful element of that song to the to the audience i think it's it's got it's, i think it's got the same thing as as when i have to go, get up and make a speech or something because there is an element of performance art in all of it um and i, you know, I was going to ask you that because as you were talking it reminded me of what you probably have to do for an opening argument or a closing argument you know, it, it, it seems to me like there was is probably a correlation for for the two. Well, I think that travelers are notoriously <clears throat> theatrical. <laughs> I think that element right. of it. But I do think certainly I think the temptation, because you have the flora as a trial lawyer, um, 
the temptation is to sort of expand uh, upon what it is you're presenting. Whereas I, I have never felt the way. I always stick to the script, you know, I'm going to get this done, you know, and, and I'm going to try to do it absolutely in the most authentic way, but in terms of my own voice and my own way of looking at the case and, um, and asking the jury to look at it that way too. And in terms of that element, there's an element of that, but like for instance, you know, there's so many different opportunities for a lawyer to get out in front of an audience that um, I think they're synergistic though too. I mean, I think my ability to get out and do some public speaking um, absolutely helped me with the poise that I needed uh, to be a lead singer in a rock and roll band. You've got to be able to play the role, I think. Right. It's got to be, you've got to be able to feel and, and deliver that song. It's, I, I think I, I do understand it after all these years now that you, you can't, you can't let the audience down. Just put it that way, you know. Right. And so, this you know, this whole podcast is about authenticity. It's about you know overcoming stereotypes. You know, the the real reason I wanted to do this and talk to badass people like you is <laughs> is to to encourage people to be themselves and to to be authentic. And you just you you know you just brought that word. You just said the word and. You know, what, what, uh, how have you been able, you, or I should say, how has your authenticity made a difference uh, wow. in your, in your professional life, personal or professional life, but how have you used it to your benefit? The, uh, I, for me, authenticity came from transition, from coming out, coming out uh, for transgender person absolutely means, means adopting a completely different look in many instances and a presentation. And uh, at least that was the act of authenticity, the absolute embrace of authenticity that I was willing to go through regardless of what the consequences were going to be. And I had no idea what they were going to be actually because nobody had ever done that one before. So there was really no roadmap. Uh, I had to just sort of Take it as it came. It was a very um, interesting existential experience, um, but I think that, that that was the best thing I could have ever done for myself. Certainly, you know, I think that I now speak with, at least internally, the voice that uh, I was I was born to speak with. I, the attitudes and ideas, and perspectives that I have, I think, are valuable because of that that difference, that change. Um, so. When you talk about authenticity, I, I encourage everybody, just whatever their job, whatever their aspirations, that the most important lesson is to be yourself. You have something to give. And regardless of whether, and I think I think a transgender person can tell you this better than anybody, that no matter what would happen after my transition, I would rather be in that place, no matter how disadvantageous it would be, uh, and be myself than to try to be somebody I was not. And that lesson, interestingly enough, seems to escape a whole lot of people who yep. think they have to be or have to behave like people that they admire or people that, that, that they think others admire. I think that being yourself is extraordinarily important for relationships. Uh, authenticity um, <clears throat> is, is, is an act of self-awareness and self-confidence um but being transgender let me just say this coming out 
and going through transition was for me the best things I ever did for myself. And in terms of how do I make it work for me is that I'm still doing all the work I do in probably the same way I've always done them, but I'm doing them uh, post-transition. And therefore, I feel like the way I make it work for me is I'm still forging a path. I'm still doing what I need to do to make sure that I'm allowing and opening doors, um, opening minds, uh, creating opportunities, uh, empowering others. I, I do what I'm doing now as a transgender woman, the same things I was doing uh, before my transition, but now it's going to benefit a larger group of people. I've always felt that being an Asian American lawyer was pretty important just you know, to get in there and you know, start something that um, became a much larger thing. Uh, I feel like the same thing with respect to the LGBT community, which at, at that point, I now try to be a part of and to try to do those same kinds of things. So for me, I try to make that change, that transition, and that resort to authenticity um, work for a much larger community. That's about the best I can say it and hopefully do things for our community that benefit everyone. No, no, no. That that's beautiful and it's it's um it's instructive and it's inspiring. Though I know when we did our panel, you mentioned um an author. I I, I don't remember who it was or or but I was really impressed with um you know you gave some examples of of um, works that that you uh, uh, like and that you you kind of live your life by. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have <laughs> some, some some suggestions of you know stuff that people can read to to make them you know embrace their their authenticity more, um, and also people who want to learn more um, about the plight of people who are different. I quoted from um, from Charles Hamilton Houston. Was it that quote? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was the mentor to Thurgood Marshall. So, you know, he was an extraordinarily important voice. I think most, well, the quote uh, from <laughs> Charles Hamilton Houston is that any lawyer who is not a social engineer is a parasite on society. And what he was saying was that if you're not actively making society better as a lawyer, you're making it worse. And he, his philosophy all the way through is that lawyers who simply live comfortable lives, sort of sucking off the economy in the way they do, uh, are really parasites on society. They're giving nothing back despite the fact that they reap the benefits, um, all the benefits, and uh, not enough of the burdens in many ways. Because when you have power, um, what I think he was saying was it's immoral to simply use it for yourself. Ultimately, right. if you have power and you usurp power, um, you become um, a liability in a society. Um, in many instances of primitive societies, uh, people, the, the exploiters and the predators um, would not be allowed in a society. Uh, and in, in ancient societies, they'd be put to death because they were a threat to the survival and the safety of of the tribe. So that's the way I looked at lawyers. I mean, I will say this, and, but you know, I will, it is 
to, from my point of view, being a lawyer can be a very fulfilling career in life and profession. It, uh, it seems to me that if you're called to something higher than simply serving yourself, then you're, you're absolutely in a place where you can do some good. Um, what we do is about service. We are serving others. Um, and the Gandhi quote, which I often use, <laughs> I kind of like to rip off Gandhi, <laughs> is that if you seek, <laughs> if you seek to find yourself, lose yourself in service to others, that has been a saying that has stuck with me for a long time, and and he's right. The better you get at at serving others, at being really good and helping other people, um, is an aspiration um, of, for any lawyer, it could be the highest aspiration. For me, I've always believed that service to the poor was the highest possible calling. So that being a public defender, my, uh, my 10 years in the office were, um, I saw them as sort of my, my, my postgraduate education mm -hmm. because I not only found how to do the work, I found out why I was doing the work, why, these people uh, were the, really the most important people any place in the criminal justice system, the poor people, because they define the system all by themselves. They tell you whether this is, this is the civilized system or an inhumane system. So to be there, um, my, certainly that's my inspirations, my, my, model, my role models were all public defenders, uh, every single one of them best lawyers I ever encountered, uh, some of the best people I've ever known. But that, that drive to serve the poor and to serve them as well as, as the rich get served, that aspiration, that ideal, um, that's something worth fighting for. That's something worth waking up in the morning uh, for uh, to get out there and, and, and rise to it. Rise to the, the right. significant challenges that you have when you, when you do that work. And especially these days, I mean, we're all in, we're, we're in a, we're, we're in unprecedented times, right? And, and, you know, we're, we're trying to, to be resilient and we're trying to, trying to make it. And, and, you know, these are times when, you know, we can all, if we can all just do a little bit to help somebody, you know, I like to say that, you know, you can, you can do, do good and do well. Um, yeah, and you know, that's yeah. one of the reasons for the, for this podcast. And one of the reasons I wanted to, to have this conversation with you, it, it's, it's been amazing. I'm going to give you, you know, an opportunity. Is there, is there anything else you want to leave our audience with to, to encourage them to, to get beyond stereotypes and, and embrace their authenticity? Well, yeah, I think I want to take off from what you just said, you know, about, about, Doing something kind for somebody who can't do anything for you. I've heard people say that your day is not complete until you do some kind thing to someone who can't do anything for you in return. And, and that is something that we lawyers are given this gift of a license <laughs> and we can do some good we can do a lot of good, but every day, the smallest, most fundamental thing is to try to make sure you can do one thing, one kind thing for yep. somebody 
who can't do anything for you in return. That is to me tells you that you're spreading the 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 gift <laughs> that you have been provided. I, I look at it that way. That's sort of like a little watchword for me in terms of like you know wake up and think, okay, what am I going to do today? You know, <laughs> that's awesome. Pay it forward, right? Yeah, to keep on doing that because it's just it defines you. It really does. It it, it what what you do for other people, what you do for nothing, um, is it defines you. That's the way I look at it. Your kindness defines you. You know, if if anybody thinks your kindness goes nowhere, if it's 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 never wasted, <laughs> no matter what kind of a skullduggery, you know. <laughs> Villain that you're, you're into because it defines you, you know. It, it really well, at least matter. you can look at yourself in the mirror, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like whatever happens, whatever people, whatever how they take it and how they treat it. Uh, if I, I gave them the gift of kindness, then I feel like I have defined myself again. I'm making the choice that uh, it helps me through that day. You know that I'm still on course. I haven't abandoned my ideals. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you so much, Mia. I mean, I am so glad that we had an opportunity to do this. I am. I feel that my life is enriched because you are in it. And I just want to say thank you to 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 being here to to BS with me today. And, and thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different. And different is good. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world. 